Part 3rd of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad The Lighthouse, Chapter 10 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan Part 3rd The Lighthouse, Chapter 10 The next day was quiet in the morning except for the faint sound of firing to the northward in the direction of Los Hatos. Captain Mitchell had listened to it from his balcony anxiously. The phrase, in my delicate position as the only consular agent then in the port, everything, sir, everything was a just cause for anxiety, had its place in the more or less stereotyped relation of the historical events, which for the next few years was at the service of distinguished strangers visiting Sulaco. The mention of the dignity and neutrality of the flag, so difficult to preserve in his position, right in the thick of these events, between the lawlessness of that piratical villain Sotillo and the more regularly established but scarcely less atrocious tyranny of His Excellency Don Pedro Montero, came next in order. Captain Mitchell was not the man to enlarge upon mere dangers much, but he insisted that it was a memorable day. On that day, towards dusk, he had seen that poor fellow of mine, Nostromo, the sailor whom I discovered, and I may say made, sir, the man of the famous ride to Caeta, sir, an historical event, sir. Regarded by the OSN Company as an old and faithful servant, Captain Mitchell was allowed to attain the term of his usefulness in ease and dignity at the head of the enormously extended service. The augmentation of the establishment with its crowds of clerks, an office in town, the old office in the harbour, the division into departments, passenger, cargo, lighterage and so on, secured a greater leisure for his last years in the regenerated Sulaco, the capital of the Occidental Republic. Liked by the natives for his good nature and the formality of his manner, Self-important and simple, known for years as a friend of our country, he felt himself a personality of mark in the town. Getting up early for a turn in the marketplace while the gigantic shadow of Higarota was still lying upon the fruit and flower stalls piled up with masses of gorgeous colouring, attending easily to current affairs, welcomed in houses, greeted by ladies on the Almeida, with his entry into all the clubs and a footing in the Casa Gould, he led his privileged old bachelor man-about-town existence with great comfort and solemnity. But on mailboat days, he was down at the harbour office at an early hour, with his own gig, manned by a smart crew in white and blue, ready to dash off and board the ship directly she showed her bows between the harbour heads. It would be into the harbour office that he would lead some privileged passenger he had brought off in his own boat, and invite him to take a seat for a moment while he signed a few papers and Captain Mitchell, seating himself at his desk, would keep on talking hospitably. There isn't much time if you are to see everything in a day. We should be off in a moment. We'll have lunch at the Amarillo Club, though I belong also to the Anglo-American, mining engineers and businessmen, don't you know, and to the Meliflores as well, a new club, English, French, Italians, all sorts, lively young fellows mostly, who wanted to pay a compliment to an old resident, sir. But we'll lunch at the Amarillo interest you, I fancy, real thing of the country, men of the first families. The President of the Occidental Republic himself belongs to it, sir. Fine old bishop with a broken nose in the patio. Remarkable piece of statuary, I believe. Cavalier Parocetti, you know, Parocetti, the famous Italian sculptor, was working here for two years, thought very highly of our old bishop. There, I'm very much at your service now. Proud of his experience, penetrated by a sense of historical importance of men, events and buildings, 
He talked pompously in jerky periods, with slight sweeps of his short, thick arm, letting nothing escape the attention of his privileged captive. Lots of building going on, as you observe. Before the separation, it was a plain of burnt grass smothered in clouds of dust, with an ox-cart track to our jetty, nothing more. This is the harbour gate. Picturesque, is it not? Formerly, the town stopped short there. We enter now the Calle de la Constitution. Observe the old Spanish houses. Great dignity, eh? I suppose it's just as it was in the time of the viceroys, except for the pavement. Woodblocks now. Salaco National Bank there, with the sentry boxes each side of the gate. Casa Avellanos this side, with all the ground floor windows shuttered. A wonderful woman lives there, Miss Avellanos, the beautiful Antonia. A character, sir, a historical woman. Opposite Casa Gould, noble gateway. Yes, the Goulds of the original Gould concession that all the world knows of now. I hold seventeen of the thousand-dollar shares of the consolidated San Tome mines. All the poor savings of my lifetime, sir, and it will be enough to keep me in comfort to the end of my days at home when I retire. I got in on the ground floor, you see. Don Carlos, great friend of mine, seventeen shares. Quite a little fortune to leave behind one, too. I have a niece, married a parson, most worthy man, incumbent of a small parish in Sussex, no end of children. I was never married myself, a sailor should exercise self-denial. Standing under that very gateway, sir, with some young fellow engineers, ready to defend that house where we had received so much kindness and hospitality, I saw the first and last charge of Pedrito's horsemen upon Barrios's troops, who had just taken the harbour gate. They could not stand the new rifles brought out by that poor Deku. It was a murderous fire. In a moment the street became blocked with a mass of dead men and horses. They never came on again. And all day Captain Mitchell would talk like this to his more or less willing victim. The plaza, I call it magnificent, twice the area of Trafalgar Square. From the very centre in the blazing sunshine he pointed out the buildings. The Intendencia, now President's Palace, Cabildo, where the lower chamber of Parliament sits. You notice the new houses on that side of the plaza? Campagna Anzani, a great general store like those cooperative things at home. Old Anzani was murdered by the National Guards in front of his safe. It was even for that specific crime that the Deputy Gamacho, commanding the Nationals, a bloodthirsty and savage brute, was executed publicly by Garotte upon the sentence of a court-martial ordered by Barrios. Anzani's nephews converted the business into a company. All that side of the plaza had been burnt, used to be colonnaded before. A terrible fire, by the light of which I saw the last of the fighting, the Linares flying, the nationals throwing their arms down, and the miners of San Tome, all Indians from the Sierra, rolling by like a torrent to the sound of pipes and cymbals, green flags flying, a wild mass of men in white ponchos and green hats, on foot, on mules, on donkeys. Such a sight, sir, will never be seen again. The miners, sir, had marched upon the town, Don Pepe leading on his black horse, and their very wives in the rear on burrows, screaming encouragement, sir, and beating tambourines. I remember one of these women had a green parrot seated on her shoulder, as calm as a bird of stone. They had just saved their senor administrador, for Barrios, though he ordered the assault at once at night, too, would have been too late. Pedrito Montero had Don Carlos led out to be shot, like his uncle, many years ago, and then, as Barrios said afterwards, Salaco would not have been worth fighting for. 
Salako, without the concession, was nothing, and there were tons and tons of dynamite distributed all over the mountain with detonators arranged, and an old priest, Father Roman, standing by to annihilate the San Tome mine at the first news of failure. Don Carlos had made up his mind not to leave it behind, and he had the right men to see to it, too. Thus Captain Mitchell would talk in the middle of the plaza, holding over his head a white umbrella with a green lining. But inside the cathedral, in the dim light, with a faint scent of incense floating in the cool atmosphere, and here and there a kneeling female figure, black or all white, with a veiled head, his lowered voice became solemn and impressive. Here, he would say, pointing to a niche in the wall of the dusky aisle, you see the bust of Don José Avellanos, patriot and statesman, as the inscription says, Minister to courts of England and Spain, etc., etc., died in the woods of Los Hartos, worn out with his lifelong struggle for right and justice at the dawn of the new era. A fair likeness. Parachetti's work from some old photographs and a pencil sketch by Mrs. Gould. I was well acquainted with that distinguished Spanish-American of the old school, a true Hildalio, beloved by everybody who knew him. The marble medallion in the wall in the antique style, representing a veiled woman seated with her hands clasped loosely over her knees, commemorates that unfortunate young gentleman who sailed out with Nostromo on that fateful night, sir. See, to the memory of Martin Decoux, his betrothed Antonia Avellanos. Frank, simple, noble. There you have that lady, sir, as she is. An exceptional woman. Those who thought she would give way to despair were mistaken, sir. She has been blamed in many quarters for not having taken the veil. It was expected of her. But Donna Antonia is not the stuff they make nuns of. Bishop Corbel and her uncle lives with her in the Corbelan townhouse. He is a fierce sort of priest, everlastingly worrying the government about the old church lands and convents. I believe they think a lot of him in Rome. Now let us go to the Amarillo Club, just across the plaza, to get some lunch. Directly outside the cathedral, on the very top of the noble flight of steps, his voice rose pompously, his arm found again its sweeping gesture. Parvenir over there, on that first floor, above those French plate-glass shop-fronts, our biggest daily. Conservative, or rather, I should say, parliamentary. We have the parliamentary party here, of which the actual chief of the state, Don Juste Lopez, is the head. A very sagacious man, I think, a first-rate intellect, sir. The Democratic Party in opposition rests mostly, I'm sorry to say, on these socialistic Italians, sir, with their secret societies, camorras and the like. There are a lot of Italians settled here on the railway lands, dismissed navvies, mechanics and so on, all along the trunk line. There are whole villages of Italians on the campo. And the natives, too, are being drawn into these ways. American bar, yes, and over there you can see another. New Yorkers mostly frequent that one. Here we are, at the Amarillo. Observe the bishop at the foot of the stairs to the right as we go in. And the lunch would begin and terminate its lavish and leisurely course at a little table in the gallery, Captain Mitchell nodding, bowing, getting up to speak for a moment to different officials in black clothes, merchants in jackets, officers in uniform, middle-aged caberos from the campo, sallow little nervous men and fat placid swarthy men and Europeans or North Americans of superior standing whose faces looked very white amongst the majority of dark complexions and black glistening eyes. Captain Mitchell would lie back in the chair casting around looks of satisfaction and tender over the table a case full of thick cigars. Try a weed with your coffee. Local tobacco. 
the black coffee you get at the Amarillo, so you don't meet anywhere in the world. We get the bean from a famous cafeteria in the foothills whose owner sends three sacks every year as a present to his fellow members in remembrance of the fight against Camacho's nationals carried on from these very windows by the caballeros. He was in town at the time and took parts to the bitter end. It arrives on three mules, not in the common way, by rail, no fear, right into the patio, escorted by mounted peons in charge of the mayoral of his estate, who walks upstairs, booted and spurred, and delivers it to our committee formally with the words, For the sake of those fallen on the 3rd of May. We call it Tres de Mayo coffee. Taste it. Captain Mitchell, with an expression as though making ready to hear a sermon in a church, would lift the tiny cup to his lips and the nectar would be sipped to the bottom during a restful silence in a cloud of cigar smoke. Look at this man in black just going out, he would begin, leaning forward hastily. This is the famous Hernandez, Minister of War, the Times special correspondent who wrote that striking series of letters calling the Occidental Republic the treasure house of the world, gave a whole article to him and the force he has organised, the renowned Carabineers of the Campo. Captain Mitchell's guest, staring curiously, would see a figure in a long-tailed black coat, walking gravely, with downcast eyelids in a long, composed face, a brow furrowed horizontally, a pointed head, whose grey hair, thin at the top, combed down carefully on all sides and rolled at the ends, fell low on the neck and shoulders. This, then, was the famous bandit of whom Europe had heard with interest. He put on a high-crowned sombrero with a wide, flat brim, a rosary of wooden beads was twisted about his right wrist, and Captain Mitchell would proceed. The protector of the Salaco refugees from the rage of Pedrito, as general of cavalry with Barrios, he distinguished himself at the storming of Tonoro, where Senor Fuentes was killed with the last remnant of the Monteros. He is the friend and humble servant of Bishop Gobelin. He has three masses every day. I bet you he will step into the cathedral to say a prayer or two on his way home to his siesta. He took several puffs at his cigar in silence, and then, in his most important manner, pronounced, The Spanish racer is prolific of remarkable characters in every rank of life. I propose we go now into the billiard room, which is cool for a quiet chat. There's never anybody there till after five. I could tell you episodes of the separationist revolution that would astonish you. When the great heat's over, we'll take a turn on the Almeida. The programme went on relentless like a law of nature. The turn on the Almeida was taken with slow steps and stately remarks. All the great world of Sulaco here, sir, Captain Mitchell bowed right and left with no end of formality, and then with animation. Donna Amelia, Mrs Gould's carriage, look, always white mules, the kindest, most gracious woman the sun ever shone upon. A great position, sir, a great position. First lady in Salaco, far before the president's wife, and worthy of it. He took off his hat then, with a studied change of tone, added negligently that the man in black by her side, with a high white collar and a scarred, snarly face, was Dr. Monningham, Inspector of State Hospitals, Chief Medical Officer of the Consolidated San Tome Mines. A familiar of the house, everlastingly there. No wonder. The Goulds made him. Very clever man and all that, but I never liked him. Nobody does. I can recollect him limping about the streets in a check shirt and native sandals with a watermelon under his arm, all he would get to eat for the day. A big wig now, sir, and as nasty as ever. However, there's no doubt he played his part fairly well at the time. 
He saved us all from the deadly incubus of Sotillo, where a more particular man might have failed. His arm went up. The equestrian statue that used to stand on the pedestal over there has been removed. It was an anachronism, Captain Mitchell commented obscurely. There is some talk of replacing it by a marble shaft, commemorative of separation, with angels of peace at the four corners and bronze justice holding up an even balance, all gilt on the top. Cavalier Paracetti was asked to make a design which you can see framed under glass in the municipal sala. Names are to be engraved all round the base. Well, they could do no better than begin with the name of Nostromo. He has done for separation as much as anybody else, and, added Captain Mitchell, has got less than many others by it when it comes to that. He dropped on to a stone seat under a tree and tapped invitingly at the place by his side. He carried to Barrios the letters from Salaco, which decided the general to abandon Caeta for a time and come back to our help here by sea. The transports were still in harbour, fortunately. Sir, I did not even know that my capitas de Cargadores was alive. I had no idea. It was Dr. Monigham who came upon him, by chance, in the custom house, evacuated an hour or two before by the wretched Sotillo. I was never told, never given a hint, nothing, as if I were unworthy of confidence. Monigham arranged it all. He went to the railway yards and got admission to the engineer-in-chief, who, for the sake of the goulds as much as for anything else, consented to let an engine make a dash down the line, 180 miles, with Nostromo aboard. It was the only way to get him off. In the construction camp at the railhead, he obtained a horse, arms, some clothing, and started alone on that marvellous ride, 400 miles in six days through a disturbed country, ending by the feat of passing through the Monterist lines outside Caeta. The history of that ride, sir, would make a most exciting book. He carried all our lives in his pocket. Devotion, courage, fidelity, intelligence were not enough. Of course, he was perfectly fearless and incorruptible, but a man was wanted that would know how to succeed. He was that man, sir. On the 5th of May, being practically a prisoner in the harbour office of my company, I suddenly heard the whistle of an engine in the railway yards a quarter of a mile away. I could not believe my ears. I made one jump onto the balcony and beheld a locomotive under a great head of steam run out of the yard gate, screeching like mad, enveloped in a white cloud, and then just abreast of old Viola's inn, check almost to a standstill. I made out, sir, a man, I couldn't tell who, dash out of the albergo d'Italia Una, climb into the cab, and then, sir, that engine seemed positively to leap clear of the house and was gone in the twinkling of an eye, as you blow a candle out, sir. There was a first-rate driver on the footplate, sir, I can tell you. They were fired heavily upon by the National Guards in Rinston and one other place. Fortunately, the line had not been torn up. In four hours they reached the construction camp. Nostromo had his start. The rest you know. You've only got to look around you. There are people on this Almeida that ride in their carriages or even are alive at all today because years ago I engaged a runaway Italian sailor for a foreman of our wharf simply on the strength of his looks. And that's a fact. You can't get over it, sir. On the 17th of May, just 12 days after I saw the man from the Casa Viola get on the engine and wondered what it meant, Barrios's transports were entering this harbour, and the treasure house of the world, as the Times man calls Sulaco in his book, was saved intact for civilization, for a great future, sir. Pedrito, with Hernandez on the west and the San Tome miners pressing on the land gate, was not able to oppose the landing. He had been sending messages to Sotillo for a week to join him. 
Had Sotillo done so, there would have been massacres and proscription that would have left no man or woman of position alive. But that's where Dr. Monningham comes in. Sotillo, blind and deaf to everything, stuck on board his steamer, watching the dragging for silver which he believed to be sunk at the bottom of the harbour. They say that for the last three days he was out of his mind, raving and foaming with disappointment at getting nothing, flying about the deck, yelling curses at the boats with the drags, ordering them in, and then suddenly stamping his foot and crying out, And yet it is there! I see it! I feel it! He was preparing to hang Dr. Monningham, whom he had on board, at the end of the after derrick, when the first of Barrios's transports, one of our own ships at that, steamed right in and ranging close alongside open a small arm fire without as much preliminaries as a hail. It was the completest surprise in the world, sir. They were too astounded at first to bolt below. Men were falling right and left like ninepins. It's a miracle that Monningham, standing in the after hatch with the rope already round his neck, escaped being riddled through and through like a sieve. He told me since that he had given himself up for lost, and kept on yelling with all the strength of his lungs, Hoist a white flag! Hoist a white flag! Suddenly an old major of the Esmeralda regiment, standing by, unsheathed his sword with a shriek, Die, perjured traitor, and ran Sotillo clean through the body, just before he fell himself shot through the head. Captain Mitchell stopped for a while. Be gad, sir, I could spin you a yarn for hours. But it's time we started off a rinse on. It would not do for you to pass through Sulaco and not see the lights of the San Tome mine, a whole mountain ablaze like a lighted palace above the dark campo. It's a fashionable drive. But let me tell you one little anecdote, sir, just to show you. A fortnight or more later, when Barrios declared Generalissimo was gone in pursuit of Pedrito away south, when the provisional junta with Don Juste Lopez at its head had promulgated the new constitution and our Don Carlos Gould was packing up his trunks bound on a mission to San Francisco and Washington. The United States sir, were the first great power to recognise the Occidental Republic. A fortnight later, I say, when we were beginning to feel that our heads were safe on our shoulders, if I may express myself so, a prominent man, a large shipper by our line, came to see me on business, and says he, the first thing, I say, Captain Mitchell, is that fellow, meaning Nostromo, still the capitaz of your cargadores or not? What's the matter, says I? Because if he is, then I don't mind. I send and receive a good lot of cargo by your ships, but I have observed him several days loafing about the wharf, and just now he stopped me as cool as you please with a request for a cigar. Now, you know my cigars are rather special, and I can't get them so easily as all that. I hope you stretched a point, I said very gently. Why, yes, but it's a confounded nuisance, the fellow's everlastingly cadging for smokes. Sir... I turned my eyes away and then asked, Weren't you one of the prisoners and the cabildo? You know very well I was, and in chains too, says he, and under a fine of fifteen thousand dollars. He coloured, sir, because it got about that he fainted from fright when they came to arrest him, and then behaved before Fuentes in a manner to make the very Ponlicianos, who had dragged him there by the hair of his head, smile at his cringing. Yes, he says in a sort of shy way. Why? Oh, nothing. You stood to lose a tidy bit, says I, even if you saved your life. But what can I do for you? He never even saw the point, not he. And that's how the world wags, sir. He rose a little stiffly, 
and the drive to Rincon would be taken with only one philosophical remark uttered by the merciless Cicerone, with his eyes fixed upon the lights of San Tome that seemed suspended in the dark night between earth and heaven. A great power, this, for good and evil, sir. A great power. And the dinner of the Miraflores would be eaten, excellent as to cooking, and leaving upon the traveller's mind an impression that there were in Salaco many pleasant, able young men with salaries apparently too large for their discretion, and amongst them a few, mostly Anglo-Saxon, skilled in the art of, as the saying is, taking a rise out of his kind host. With a rapid, jingling drive to the harbour in a two-wheeled machine, which Captain Mitchell called a curricle, behind a fleet and scraggy mule beaten all the time by an obviously Neapolitan driver, the cycle would be nearly closed before the lighted-up offices of the OSN company, remaining open so late because of the steamer. Nearly, but not quite. Ten o'clock! Your ship won't be ready to leave till half-past twelve, if by then. Come in for a brandy and soda and one more cigar and in the superintendent's private room the privileged passenger by the Ceres or Juno or Pallas, stunned and, as it were, annihilated mentally by a sudden surfeit of sighs, sounds, names, facts and complicated information imperfectly apprehended, would listen like a tired child to a fairy tale, would hear a voice familiar and surprising in its pompousness tell him, as if from another world, how there was, in this very harbour, an international naval demonstration which put an end to the costaguana Sulaco War, how the United States cruiser Powhatan was the first to salute the Occidental flag, white with a wreath of green laurel in the middle, encircling a yellow amarilla flower. Would hear how General Montero, in less than a month after proclaiming himself Emperor of Costaguana, was shot dead during a solemn and public distribution of orders and crosses by a young artillery officer, the brother of his then mistress. The abominable Pedrito, sir, fled the country, the voice would say, and it would continue. A captain of one of our ships told me lately that he recognised Pedrito the guerriero, arrayed in purple slippers and a velvet smoking cap with a gold tassel, keeping a disorderly house in one of the southern ports. Abominable Pedrito, who the devil was he, would wonder the distinguished bird of passage hovering on the confines of waking and sleep with resolutely opened eyes and a faint but amiable curl upon his lips, from between which stuck out the eighteenth or twentieth cigar of that memorable day. He appeared to me in this very room like a haunting ghost, sir, Captain Mitchell was talking of his Nostromo, with true warmth of feeling and a touch of wistful pride. You may imagine, sir, what an effect it produced on me. He had come round by sea with Barrios, of course, and the first thing he told me, after I became fit to hear him, was that he had picked up the lighter's boat floating in the gulf. He seemed quite overcome by the circumstance. And a remarkable enough circumstance it was, when you remember that it was then sixteen days since the sinking of the silver. At once I could see he was another man. He stared at the wall, sir, as if there had been a spider or something running about there. The loss of the silver preyed on his mind. The first thing he asked me about was whether Donna Antonia had heard yet of Decoud's death. His voice trembled. I had to tell him that Donna Antonia, as a matter of fact, was not back in town yet. Poor girl. And just as I was making ready to ask him a thousand questions with a sudden, pardon me, signor, he cleared out of the office altogether. 
I did not see him again for three days. I was terribly busy, you know. It seems that he wandered about in and out of the town, and on two nights turned up to sleep in the barracoons of the railway people. He seemed absolutely indifferent to what went on. I asked him on the wharf, When are you going to take hold again, Nostromo? There will be plenty of work for the cargadores presently. Senor, says he, looking at me in a slow, inquisitive manner, would it surprise you to hear that I am too tired to work just yet? And what work could I do now? How can I look my cargadores in the face after losing a lighter? I begged him not to think any more about the silver, and he smiled, a smile that went to my heart, sir. It was no mistake, I told him. It was a fatality, a thing that could not be helped. See, see, he said, and turned away. I thought it best to leave him alone for a bit to get over it. Sir, took him years, really, to get over it. I was present at his interview with Don Carlos. I must say that Gould is rather a cold man. He had to keep a tight hand on his feelings, dealing with thieves and rascals in constant danger of ruin for himself and wife for so many years that it had become a second nature. They looked at each other for a long time. Don Carlos asked what he could do for him in his quiet, reserved way. My name is known from one end of Sulaco to the other, he said, as quiet as the other. What more can you do for me? That was all that passed on that occasion. Later on, however, there was a very fine coasting schooner for sale, and Mrs. Gould and I put our heads together to get her bought and presented to him. It was done, but he paid all the price back within the next three years. Business was booming all along this seaboard, sir. Moreover, that man always succeeded in everything except in saving the silver. Poor Donna Antonia, fresh from her terrible experience in the woods at Las Hartos, had an interview with him too, wanted to hear about Decoux, what they said, what they did, what they thought up to the last on that fatal night. Mrs. Gould told me his manner was perfect for quietness and sympathy. Miss Avellanos burst into tears only when he told her how Decoux had happened to say that his plan would be a glorious success. And there's no doubt, sir, that it is. It is a success. The cycle was about to close at last, and while the privileged passenger, shivering with the pleasant anticipation of his berth, forgot to ask himself what on earth Decoud's plan could be, Captain Mitchell was saying, Sorry we must part so soon. Your intelligent interest made this a pleasant day for me. I shall see you now on board. You had a glimpse of the treasure house of the world. A very good name, that. And the coxswain's voice at the door, announcing that the gig was ready, closed the cycle. Nostromo had indeed found the lighter's boat, which he had left on the Great Isabel with Decoud, floating empty, far out in the gulf. He was then on the bridge of the first of Barrios's transports, and within an hour's steaming from Sulaco. Barrios, always delighted with a feat of daring and a good judge of courage, had taken a great liking to the Capitas. During the passage round the coast, the general kept Nostromo near his person, addressing him frequently in that abrupt, and boisterous manner which was the sign of his high favour. Nostromo's eyes were the first to catch, broad on the bow, the tiny, elusive, dark speck, which alone with the forms of the three Isabels right ahead appeared on the flat, shimmering emptiness of the gulf. There are times when no fact should be neglected as insignificant. A small boat, so far from the land, might have had some meaning worth finding out. At a nod of consent from Barrios, the transport swept out of her course, passing near enough to ascertain that no one manned the little cockle-shell. 
it was merely a common small boat gone adrift with her oars in her. But Nostromo, to whose mind Decoux had been insistently present for days, had long before recognised with excitement the dinghy of the lighter. There could be no question of stopping to pick up that thing. Every minute of time was momentous with the lives and futures of a whole town. The head of the leading ship, with the general on board, fell off to her course. Behind her, the fleet of transports, scattered haphazard over a mile or so in the offing, like the finish of an ocean race, pressed on, all black and smoking on the western sky. Mi general, Nostromo's voice rang out loud, but quiet, from behind a group of officers. I should like to save that little boat, por Dios, I know her. She belongs to my company. And por Dios, scuffled Barrios in a noisy, good-humoured voice, you belong to me. I am going to make you a captain of cavalry directly we get within sight of our horse again. I can swim far better than I can ride, mi general, cried Nostromo, pushing through to the rail with a set stare in his eyes. Let me. Let you? What a conceited fellow that is, bantered the general jovially, without even looking at him. Let him go. Ha, ha, ha. He wants me to admit that we cannot take Sulaco without him. Ha, ha, ha. Would you like to swim after her, my son? A tremendous shout from one end of the ship to the other stopped his guffaw. Nostromo had leapt overboard, and his black head bobbed up, far away already from the ship. The general muttered an appalled giallo, sinner that I am, in a thunderstruck tone. One anxious glance was enough to show him that Nostromo was swimming with perfect ease, and then he thundered terribly. No, no, we shall not stop to pick up this impertinent fellow. Let him drown that mad capitaz. Nothing short of main force would have kept Nostromo from leaping overboard. That empty boat coming out to meet him mysteriously, as if rowed by an invisible spectre, exercised the fascination of some sign, of some warning, seemed to answer in a startling and enigmatic way the persistent thought of a treasure and of a man's fate. He would have leapt if there had been death in that half-mile of water. It was as smooth as a pond and for some reason sharks are unknown in the placid gulf, though on the other side of the Punta Mala the coastline swarms with them. The Capitaz seized hold of the stern and blew with force. A queer, quaint feeling had come over him while he swam. He had got rid of his boots and coat in the water. He hung on for a time, regaining his breath. In the distance, the transports, more in a bunch now, held on straight for Sulaco, with their air of friendly contest, of nautical sport, of a regatta. And the united smoke of their funnels drove like a thin, sulphurous fog-bank right over his head. It was his daring, his courage, his act that had set these ships in motion upon the sea, hurrying on to save the lives and fortunes of the Blancos, the taskmasters of the people, to save the San Tome mine, to save the children. With a vigorous and skilful effort, he clambered over the stern. The very boat, no doubt of it, no doubt whatever. It was the dinghy of the lighter number three. The dinghy left with Martin Decoux on the Great Isabel so that he should have some means to help himself if nothing could be done for him from the shore. And here she had come out to meet him, empty and inexplicable. What had become of Decoux? The Capitas made a minute examination. He looked for some scratch, for some mark, for some sign. All he discovered was a brown stain on the gunwale abreast of the thwart. He bent his face over it and rubbed hard with his finger. Then he sat down in the stern sheets, passive, with his knees close together and legs aslant. 
streaming from head to foot with his hair and whiskers hanging lank and dripping and a lustreless stare fixed upon the bottom boards. The capitos of the Sulaco Cargadores resembled a drowned corpse come up from the bottom to idle away the sunset hour on a small boat. The excitement of his adventurous ride, the excitement of the return in time, of achievement, of success, all this excitement centred around the associated ideas of the great treasure and of the only other man who knew of its existence had departed from him. To the very last moment he had been cudgelling his brains as to how he could manage to visit the great Isabel without loss of time and undetected, for the idea of secrecy had come to be connected with the treasure so closely that even to Barrios himself he had refrained from mentioning the existence of Deku and of the silver on the island. The letters he carried to the general, however, made brief mention of the loss of the lighter as having its bearing upon the situation in Sulaco. In the circumstances, the one-eyed tiger-slayer, scenting battle from afar, had not wasted his time in making inquiries from the messenger. In fact, Barrios, talking with Nostromo, assumed that both Don Martin de Cou and the ingots of San Tome were lost altogether, and Nostromo, not questioned directly, had kept silent, under the influence of some indefinable form of resentment and distrust. Let Don Martin speak of everything with his own lips was what he told himself mentally. And now, with the means of gaining the great Isabel thrown thus in his way at the earliest possible moment, his excitement had departed, as when the soul takes flight, leaving the body inert upon an earth it knows no more. Nostromo did not seem to know the gulf. For a long time even his eyelids did not flutter once upon the glazed emptiness of his stare. Then slowly, without a limb having stirred, without a twitch of muscle or quiver of an eyelash, an expression... A living expression came upon the still features. Deep thought crept into the empty stare, as if an outcast soul, a quiet, brooding soul, finding that untenanted body in its way, had come in stealthily to take possession. The Capitas frowned, and in the immense stillness of sea, islands and coast, of cloud forms on the sky and trails of light upon the water, the knitting of that brow had the emphasis of a powerful gesture. Nothing else budged for a long time. Then the Capitaz shook his head and again surrendered himself to the universal repose of all visible things. Suddenly he seized the oars and with one movement made the dinghy spin around, head on to the great Isabel. But before he began to pull, he bent once more over the brown stain on the gunwale. I know that thing he muttered to himself with a sagacious jerk of the head. That's blood. His stroke was long, vigorous and steady. Now and then he looked over his shoulder at the great Isabel, presenting its low cliff to his anxious gaze like an impenetrable face. At last the stem touched the strand. He flung rather than dragged the boat up the little beach. At once... Turning his back upon the sunset, he plunged with long strides into the ravine, making the water of the stream spurt and fly upward at every step, as if spurning its shallow, clear, murmuring spirit with his feet. He wanted to save every moment of daylight. A mass of earth, grass and smashed bushes had fallen down very naturally from above upon the cavity under the leaning tree. Deku had attended to the concealment of the silver as instructed, using the spade with some intelligence. But Nostromo's half-smile of approval changed into a scornful curl of the lip by the side of the spade itself flung there in full view, as if in utter carelessness or sudden panic giving away the whole thing. 
Ah, they were all alike in their folly, these hombres finos that invented laws and governments and barren tasks for the people. The Capitas picked up the spade, and with the feel of the handle in his palm, the desire of having a look at the horsehide boxes of treasure came upon him suddenly. In a very few strokes, he uncovered the edges and corners of several, then, clearing away more earth, became aware that one of them had been slashed with a knife. He exclaimed at that discovery in a stifled voice, and dropped on his knees with a look of irrational apprehension over one shoulder, then over the other. The stiff hide had closed, and he hesitated before he pushed his hand through the long slit and felt the ingots inside. For there they were, one, two, three, yes, four gone, taken away. Four ingots. But who? Deku? Nobody else. And why? For what purpose? For what cursed fantasy? Let him explain. Four ingots carried off in a boat, and blood. In the face of the open gulf, the sun, clear, unclouded, unaltered, plunged into the waters in a grave and untroubled mystery of self-immolation, consummated far from all mortal eyes, with an infinite majesty of silence and peace. Four ingots short, and blood. The Capitaz got up slowly. He might simply have cut his hand, he muttered, but then... He sat down on the soft earth, unresisting, as if he had been chained to the treasure, his drawn-up legs clasped in his hands with an air of hopeless submission, like a slave set on guard. Once only he lifted his head smartly. The rattle of hot musketry fire had reached his ears like pouring from on high a stream of dry peas upon a drum. After listening for a while, he said, half aloud, He will never come back to explain. And he lowered his head again. Impossible, he muttered gloomily. The sounds of firing died out. The loom of a great conflagration in Slaco flashed up red above the coast, played on the clouds at the head of the gulf, seemed to touch with a ruddy and sinister reflection the forms of the three Isabels. He never saw it, though he raised his head. But then I cannot know, he pronounced distinctly, and remained silent and staring for hours. He could not know. Nobody was to know. As might have been supposed, the end of Don Martin de Coup never became a subject of speculation for anyone except Nostromo. Had the truth of the facts been known, there would always have remained the question, why? whereas the version of his death at the sinking of the lighter had no uncertainty of motive. The young apostle of separation had died striving for his idea by an ever-lamented accident. But the truth was that he died from solitude, the enemy known but to few on this earth, and whom only the simplest of us are fit to withstand. The brilliant Costaguanero of the boulevards had died from solitude and want of faith in himself and others. For some good and valid reasons beyond mere human comprehension, the seabirds of the Gulf shun the Isabels. The rocky head of Azuera is their haunt, their stony levels and chasms resound with their wild and tumultuous clamour, as if they were forever quarrelling over the legendary treasure. At the end of his first day on the Great Isabel, Deku, turning in his lair of coarse grass under the shade of a tree, said to himself, I have not seen as much as one single bird all day. And he had not heard a sound either, all day, 
but that one now of his own muttering voice. It had been a day of absolute silence, the first he had known in his life, and he had not slept a wink, not for all these wakeful nights and the days of fighting, planning, talking, not for all that last night of danger and hard physical toil upon the gulf had he been able to close his eyes for a moment, and yet from sunrise to sunset he had been lying prone on the ground, either on his back or on his face. He stretched himself, and with slow steps descended into the gully to spend the night by the side of the silver. If Nostromo returned, as he might have done at any moment, it was there that he would look first, and night would, of course, be the proper time for an attempt to communicate. He remembered with profound indifference that he had not eaten anything yet since he had been left alone on the island. He spent the night open-eyed, and when the day broke he ate something with the same indifference. The brilliant son Decou, the spoiled darling of the family, the lover of Antonia and journalist of Salaco, was not fit to grapple with himself single-handed. Solitude, from mere outward condition of existence, becomes very swiftly a state of soul in which the affectations of irony and scepticism have no place. It takes possession of the mind and drives forth the thought into the exile of utter unbelief. After three days of waiting for the sight of some human face, Deku caught himself entertaining a doubt of his own individuality. It had merged into the world of cloud and water, of natural forces and forms of nature. In our activity alone do we find the sustaining illusion of an independent existence as against the whole scheme of things of which we form a helpless part. Deku lost all belief in the reality of his action past and to come. On the fifth day an immense melancholy descended upon him palpably. He resolved not to give himself up to these people in Sulaco who had beset him, unreal and terrible, like gibbering and obscene spectres. He saw himself struggling feebly in their midst, an Antonia, gigantic and lovely like an allegorical statue, looking on with scornful eyes at his weakness. Not a living being not a speck of distant sail, appeared within the range of his vision, and as if to escape from this solitude he absorbed himself in his melancholy. The vague consciousness of a misdirected life, given up to impulses whose memory left a bitter taste in his mouth, was the first moral sentiment of his manhood. But at the same time he felt no remorse. What should he regret? He had recognised no other virtue than intelligence, and had directed passions into duties. Both his intelligence and his passions were swallowed up easily in this great unbroken solitude of waiting without faith. Sleeplessness had robbed his will of all energy, for he had not slept seven hours in the seven days. His sadness was the sadness of a sceptical mind. He beheld the universe as a succession of incomprehensible images. Nostromo was dead. Everything had failed ignominiously. He no longer dared to think of Antonia. She had not survived, but if she survived he could not face her, and all exertion seemed senseless. On the tenth day, after a night spent without even dozing off once, it had occurred to him that Antonia could not possibly have ever loved a being so impalpable as himself. The solitude appeared like a great void, and the silence of the gulf like a tense, thin cord to which he hung suspended by both hands, without fear, without surprise, without any sort of emotion whatever. 
only toward the evening, in the comparative relief of coolness, he began to wish that this cord would snap. He imagined it snapping with a report as of a pistol, a sharp, full crack, and that would be the end of him. He contemplated that eventuality with pleasure, because he dreaded the sleepless nights in which the silence, remaining unbroken in the shape of a cord to which he hung with both hands, vibrated with senseless phrases, always the same but utterly incomprehensible, about Nostromo, Antonio, Barrios, and proclamations mingled into an ironical and senseless buzzing. In the daytime he could look at the silence like a still cord stretched to breaking point, with his life his vain life, suspended to it like a weight. I wonder whether I should hear it snap before I fell, he asked himself. The sun was two hours above the horizon when he got up, gaunt, dirty, white-faced, and looked at it with his red-rimmed eyes. His limbs obeyed him slowly, as if full of lead, yet without tremor, and the effect of that physical condition gave to his movements an unhesitating, deliberate dignity. He acted as if accomplishing some sort of rite. He descended into the gully, for the fascination of all that silver with its potential power survived alone outside of himself. He picked up the belt with the revolver that was lying there and buckled it round his waist. The cord of silence could never snap on the island. It must let him fall and sink into the sea, he thought. And sink. He was looking at the loose earth covering the treasure. In the sea. His aspect was that of a somnambulist. He lowered himself down on his knees slowly and went on grubbing with his fingers with industrious patience till he uncovered one of the boxes. Without a pause, as if doing some work done many times before, he slit it open and took four ingots, which he put in his pockets. He covered up the exposed box again and, step by step, came out of the gully. The bushes closed after him with a swish. It was on the third day of his solitude that he had dragged the dinghy near the water with an idea of rowing away somewhere, but had desisted partly at the whisper of lingering hope that Nostromo would return, partly from conviction of utter uselessness of all effort. Now she wanted only a slight shove to be set afloat. He had eaten a little every day after the first and had some muscular strength left yet. Taking up the oars slowly, he pulled away from the cliff for the great Isabel that stood behind him warm with sunshine, as if with a heat of life, bathed in a rich light from head to foot, as if in a radiance of hope and joy. He pulled straight towards the setting sun. When the gulf had grown dark, he ceased rowing and flung the skulls in. The hollow clatter they made in falling was the loudest noise he had ever heard in his life. It was a revelation. It seemed to recall him from far away. Actually, the thought, perhaps I may sleep tonight, passed through his mind. But he did not believe it. He believed in nothing, and he remained sitting on the thwart. The dawn from behind the mountains put a gleam into his unwinking eyes. After a clear daybreak, the sun appeared splendidly above the peaks of the range, the great gulf burst into a glitter all around the boat, and in this glory of merciless solitude the silence appeared again before him, stretching taut like a dark, thin string. His eyes looked at it while, without haste, he shifted his seat from the thwart to the gunwale. They looked at it fixedly while his hand, feeling about his waist, unbuttoned the flap of the leather case, drew the revolver, 
cocked it, brought it forward, pointing at his breast, pulled the trigger, and with convulsive force sent the still-smoking weapon hurtling through the air. His eyes looked at it while he fell forward and hung with his breast on the gunwale and the fingers of his right hand hooked under the thwart. They looked. It is done, he stammered out in a sudden flow of blood. His last thought was, I wonder how that capita has died. The stiffness of the fingers relaxed, and the lover of Antonia Avellanos rolled overboard without having heard the cord of silence snap in the solitude of the placid gulf, whose glittering surface remained untroubled by the fall of his body. A victim of the disillusioned weariness which is the retribution meted out to intellectual audacity, the brilliant Don Martin de Coux, weighted by the bars of San Tome Silva, disappeared without a trace, swallowed up in the immense indifference of things. His sleepless, crouching figure was gone from the side of the San Tome Silva, and for a time the spirits of good and evil that hover near every concealed treasure of the earth might have thought that this one had been forgotten by all mankind. Then, after a few days, another form appeared, striding away from the setting sun, to sit motionless and awake in the narrow black gully all through the night, in nearly the same pose, in the same place in which had sat that other sleepless man who had gone away forever so quietly in a small boat about the time of sunset. And the spirits of good and evil that hover about a forbidden treasure understood well that the silver of San Tome was provided now with a faithful and lifelong slave. The magnificent Capitas de Cagadores, victim of the disenchanted vanity which is the reward of audacious action, sat in the weary pose of a hunted outcast through a night of sleeplessness as tormenting as any known to Deku, his companion in the most desperate affair of his life. And he wondered how Deku had died. But he knew the part he had played himself, First a woman, then a man, abandoned both in their last extremity for the sake of this accursed treasure. It was paid for by a soul lost and by a vanished life. The blank stillness of awe was succeeded by a gust of immense pride. There was no one in the world but Gian Battista Fidanza, Capitas de Cargadores, the incorruptible and faithful Nostromo, to pay such a price. He had made up his mind that nothing should be allowed now to rob him of his bargain. Nothing. Deku had died. But how? That he was dead, he had not a shadow of a doubt. But four ingots? What for? Did he mean to come for more? Some other time? The treasure was putting forth its latent power. It troubled the clear mind of the man who had paid the price. He was sure that Deku was dead. The island seemed full of that whisper. Dead gone, and he caught himself listening for the swish of bushes and the splash of the footfalls in the bed of the brook. Dead. The talker, the novio of Donna Antonia. Ah, he murmured, with his head on his knees, under the livid, clouded dawn breaking over the liberated Salaco and upon the gulf as grey as ashes. It is to her that he will fly, to her that he will fly. And four ingots? Did he take them in revenge, to cast a spell, like the angry woman who had prophesied remorse and failure, and yet had laid upon him the task of saving the children? Well, he had saved the children. He had defeated the spell of poverty and starvation. He had done it all alone, or perhaps helped by the devil. Who cared? 
He had done it, betrayed as he was, and saving by the same stroke the San Tome mine, which appeared to him hateful and immense, lording it by its vast wealth over the valour, the toil, the fidelity of the poor, over war and peace, over the labours of the town, the sea, and the campo. The sun lit up the sky behind the peaks of the Cordillera. The Capitans looked down for a time upon the fall of loose earth, stones, and smashed bushes, concealing the hiding-place of the silver. "'I must grow rich very slowly,' he meditated aloud. End of Part Third The Lighthouse Chapter 10